Like I said, I was hoping not to do two weeks on the existence of God, but you know, the Lord knows what he's doing, so uh, we are going to finish it today, and it ties in it, but I will say it does tie in really nicely to next week, so just a sneak peek. Next week, we'll finally actually start talking attributes of God, although technically, God's existence is an attribute. So we are actually looking at an attribute. I mean, if you think about it, uh, existence is something some, a creature has to have. It has to have existence in order for it to be. So, so this actually is an attribute of God, which is, again, why I included it. Because I understand that for our particular crowd, you probably don't need a whole lot of convincing or proof that God exists. I know we're kind of all past that at this point. But it belongs in this because existence is an attribute. So I guess it's wrong to say next week's our first one, but... Uh, it's, we're, next week is really where we're getting into what I was thinking of when I did this series. And just as a sneak peek, we're looking at God's spirituality, that God is a spirit. And that's one of those that sounds really obvious. It sounds like we could cover that in 30 seconds, but I think you'll find that it's really fun to talk about the spirithood of God's existence. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. So next week will be God is spirit. Uh, but this week, we're going to finish existence of God. I'd like to just briefly review what we did last time. So last week, we looked at four arguments for the existence of God. The teleological argument, the fine-tuning argument, the cosmological argument, and the transcendental argument. And then we didn't finish this, so that's what we'll do today. We'll finish this one. So just really, really fast recap. The teleological argument, argument if you remember, teleo teleology is end purpose. If something has a telos, it means that's its purpose or its end, why it's here. And the universe uh, reveals evidence of design and information, which again is purposeful. Information has purpose. It's trying to communicate something. Design is trying to communicate something. Design has a purpose. Uh, you know, the, the easiest examples of that are tools. If you were to go wandering in the wilderness and you picked up something that was obviously two stones, a stone and a stick put together in a hammer, you wouldn't think that happened accidentally. You'd say, this is a hammer, and you would know that because hammers are designed for a particular purpose. You see its purpose and what it's made. So when something shows evidences of being designed, then it's showing evidence of purpose. It has, it has a reason for it being here. And, it sh and the creation shows design. Same with information. Information communicates purpose, and the universe in many different ways exhibit signs of information. The example I like to give for that is I gave last week SOS in the sand. You're in a helicopter, you see SOS in the sand. You don't assume that happened naturally because it's information. And there's tons of different ways that the universe reveals design and information. Only personal agents create design and information. So first argument of the premise is that the universe has evidence of design and information. The second argument is that only design and information don't happen by accident. You don't blow things up and then get, uh, you know, like the, the famous example is you can't put a bunch of orangutans on a keyboard and expect Shakespeare's plays to come out on the other end. You can expect paper and letters and maybe even, you might even expect a couple accidental words here and there, maybe an A and D or, you know, you might even get some legical, you know, words over time. But generally speaking, you're not going to get a coherent letter by just randomly smashing a keyboard. Randomness, accidents, and chaos don't give you design and it doesn't give you information. Only personal agents create design and information. So what's the conclusion? The universe was created by a personal agent. If it shows evidence of design and information, it came from a person. It was created by a personal agent. So that was the teleological argument. Related to it is the fine-tuning argument. I didn't put this in a logical syllogism. I just gave a statement. Uh, the universe is so finely tuned for life and observation that it is unreasonable to expect it came accidentally from nothing and through chaos. So again, these are very, very related, but a little bit different because fine-tuning is not technically information or design. It actually is its own category. So that's why the fine-tuning argument is actually a little different than teleology. Uh, and the example I like to get from this is, again, I used it last week, my guitar. In order to strum the guitar, every single string has to be tuned to the exact right frequency, to the exact right pitch. And even just the slightest little nudge can make one go out of tune and then the whole sound doesn't work. And you would never expect to put metal, wood in a pile, blow it up, and then have it accidentally create a guitar in which the strings are perfectly tuned. Like chaos doesn't produce finely tuned instruments. 
Accidents don't produce finely tuned instruments. So if the universe was accidentally here and then it exploded, and that, that is the evolution, that is the non-God theory of the universe, the atheistic theory is that we don't know how it got here, but somehow the universe got here. It didn't get here with a purpose, so it got here accidentally. And then once it was here, it exploded in the Big Bang, and then that's how we got here. So the atheistic universe is we accidentally showed up from nothing, and then a chaotic explosion gave us this finely tuned universe. But again, that's like getting wood and metal from nothing, and then blowing it up, and then creating a perfectly tuned guitar. It's just, it's, it's an unreasonable assumption. And uh, there's plenty of evidence that we looked at just some of it last week for the fine-tuning of the universe. One of the key ones that most people talk about is gravity. If gravity was just, just barely different, the universe would either expand or collapse in on itself. Um, so the gravity is like the, the, the E string on my guitar. It can't, be twi- it can't be tweaked even just a little bit or else the whole sound falls apart. We also looked at the cosmological argument. Um, which is that that which begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. The universe was caused. Uh, this one's pretty simple. Usually this is where people will try to debate, um, but there's a lot, of, a lot of evidence, both logical and uh, scientific, for the universe actually not being an eternal thing. Matter is not eternal. Uh, I think one of the ones, the, the main one that people point to, I think the video that we looked at pointed to this, is what's called the redshift uh, discovery which I don't know why the light is red. I don't know all the details behind it. But long story short, the, the Hubble telescope was able to basically see that the universe is running on energy. And this comes back to the Hubble telescope and these, these red light patterns. And long story short, I, I can't explain to you how, but it's, it's not very, and what I'm saying is not scientifically controversial. It's scientifically accepted is what I'm saying, that the universe is actually literally running on fuel. And uh, it's, if after a few billion years, it'll, it's going to run out of energy. And so if you trace that back in time, well, you have to have it existing. Uh, things that are eternal can't run on fuel. Uh, it has, so we know, we know for a fact that as the universe is dwindling, dwindling out, running out of energy, that means that it had to have been caused. So this has actually become a fairly uncontroversial point. Uh, so those were kind of the three really popular and basic ones that we looked at. And where we really started to spend a lot of our time just because I like it. Um, but I, I'm, I'm also going to show you at the end why I like this so much. And it'll be brief. Is the transcendental argument. This argument's not very popular among apologists. These ones are really, really popular. Um, but I, I really like this one. And I have a couple statements just to remind us of what it's getting at. And it's the idea that God is the necessary precondition for intelligibility. And it sounds like a bunch of couple big words, but it's really pretty simple. The, all it's saying is that Everything we take for granted in life are things that God has to be underneath supporting. Um, You could not be an intelligent person. You could not have a universe, an intelligent universe. And what we mean by that is we live in in a world where we're capable of observing the universe. And just to make a statement like that, I observe the universe. A lot of assumptions are, are happening underneath that statement. You're assuming that you have a reasoning process, which is capable of examination and contemplation, and you're capable that the universe is situated in such a way that it's actually observable. For example, imagine if we didn't have a sun. Now, obviously, a lot of other things would go wrong, but let's just assume we somehow we still had light. We still had everything as it is, just no light. At that point, the universe wouldn't be observable. Everything would be dark and black. And that's just one example. We have a very observable universe. We have the ability to perform science, to observe things, to study things, to think about things. And all of the the ways we live our lives through ethics and observation and logic and reasoning, all of these things that we need to survive, that we need for intelligibility of any kind, are things that if you were to take God out of the equation, you would take those things out of the equation too. God and reason are tied at the hip, where you can't have one and not the other. So if you take God out of your worldview, that's fine, but you need to take reason out of your worldview also. If you want to take God out of your worldview, fine, go ahead, but take morality out of your worldview too. If you want to take God out of your worldview, that's fine, but take science out of your worldview as well. In other words, the transcendental argument is saying that the very tools we use to determine truth, we actually need God to have those tools be like building a house and saying, look, I can build a house all by myself. And then someone said, well, where all those tools come from? And you look at your hammer and you look at yourself, you look at everything and they all say made by God on it. 
And that's kind of what we're getting at. Logic is, belongs to God. Science belongs to God. Ethics belong to God. So you can't use those things to disprove God because you need God in order to even justify those things. That's kind of the heart and soul of the transcendental argument. You could, you could break these categories out into lots of categories, but I like to simplify it in these things. I would say these are kind of the basic building blocks of life to some degree for, for, for culture. We have, to have, we have to be reasoning beings. We have to be able to think about the world. If you don't know how to think, if you're brain dead, then like what, what good would the world be if everyone was brain dead? <laughs> it would be basically no life at all. You have to be able to think and reason. Uh, we have to use science. We have to study and understand the world. And then we have to get along and live with each other in the process. Like this is kind of the fundamental aspects of intelligibility on life. And the transcendental argument says that without God, none of these things make sense. It would be unreasonable to believe these things exist apart from God. Uh, so, for example, reason we talked about, chemical reactions don't reason. A chemical reaction is not thinking. It's not contemplating. The example I gave again is, it'd be like if I came up here and I took two Coke bottles and I shook them and then I opened them and they started to fizz and explode. You would never look at that fizzing and think that it's musing. That, it, that you would never look at that and say philosophy is happening here. Like the Coke bottles aren't thinking. They're not reasoning. They're just, that's just a chemical reaction. That's just what carbonation under pressure exposed to oxygen, that's just what it does. That's not a, that's not a reasoning faculty, right? But notice without God, without spirit, without invisible soul spirits, without God, then all our brains are doing when we quote unquote think it's just a chemical reaction in your head, right? Your brain is just fizzing. So your thoughts are not really thoughts. They're just, they're just your brain reacting the way you, that your particular organic matter inside of your skull at these temperatures under these conditions, that's how it fizzes. In other words, in atheism, you don't reason, you just have brain fizz. You shake up Coke, open it up, it fizzes. Bill walks into this room, his brain fizzes. We're just fizzing, but we're not thinking. We're not reasoning. We're not contemplating. So any time someone wants to give a reason for why God doesn't exist, they've just refuted themselves. Because if God doesn't exist, then they're not actually contemplating the evidence for God. They're just robots and their brains are just firing. Who can control your brain firings? Nobody. Your brain just fires one way and that's what you think, right? You're just a biological robot at that point. Um... Yeah, so that's kind of put into an argument. Here's how I like to think about it. In other words, atheism can account for your brain, but it cannot account for your mind. Atheism can account for your brain, but it can't account for your mind. Atheism can say, yeah, there's this organic matter inside of your skull and little invisible electric electrons fire. And when those fire, you do certain things. So they can account that you are a puppet to your brain. You've got an organic brain that fires, and when it fires a certain way, your body does certain things. But they cannot account for what's making that firing happening. Why is it happening this way versus another? They can't reason. Your brain is just accidentally fizzing, and it's making you do things. It's making you believe things. So in atheism, you don't have a mind. You just have a brain. You're just, your body is a slave to your brain, which is accidentally fizzing like a chemistry project. So there's really no such thing as reason in a godless universe. There's just organic puppets who are slaves to the accidental chemical reactions firing in their skulls. There's no such thing as thinking or reasoning. So a reason for God's non-existence is a contradiction of terms. You cannot reason if God does not exist. You cannot reason if God does not exist. You've just got a Coke bottle fizzing in your head. This would also apply to the laws of logic, right? When, whenever, you don't, you don't have to actually be able to know the laws of logic. Like, you don't have to be able to tell me what's the law of identity, what's the law of non-contradiction, what's the law of refurcation. You don't need to know those things, uh, but to, 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 to live in a world where you expect people to be logical, right? You don't have to study logic 
to live by it. And every single person lives by logic. If, I were, if we were to host a debate, for example, let's say you weren't here for class, you were here for a debate, and I was debating an atheist on, does God exist? You would show up here and you would be, without even knowing it, you would just be instinctively showing up here, you'd be hearing the words that we're saying, and you would have in your mind this invisible template of logical laws, and you would be seeing which one of those people is making more sense. What does the message that person A is communicating, does it fit with the laws of logic? Is this logical? Is this reasonable? So we have to ask the question, where do those laws come from? What, what are the, where are you getting these laws of logic? If I were to say God exists because he doesn't, you say that doesn't make sense. And I would say sense, what sense? What does it mean for something not to make sense? You say, well, it's not reasonable. Well, what does it mean for something to not be reasonable? Well, it's, it's contradicting standards of reasoning. Okay, well, where, what are standards of reasoning? Where do these come from? Okay, they're laws of logic. There's these laws that our thinking has to abide by. Where do these laws come from? Says who? I didn't vote for them. I didn't vote on the law of non-contradiction. Why can't I contradict, right? Where, what are the laws of logic and where do they come from? And we would argue in an atheistic universe, you really don't have the right um, lines on your court to play by this game. You, you can't make sense of what logical laws are. Logical law, and that's because logical laws transcend nature. They interact in the natural world. The natural world obeys logical laws, but the logical laws do not come from the natural world. They are above nature. They transcend nature, right? In other words, um, let's even just take the Big Bang we would, most atheists would agree with us that before creation, before matter got here, the laws of logic still stood. In other words, it, was, it wasn't possible for matter to exist and not exist at the same time and in the same way before the Big Bang. The Big Bang did not create logical laws. Logical laws transcend the material world. They are outside and the material world obeys them but in other words, we didn't grow the logical laws from the ground. We didn't create them in a test tube, right? These things are not natural. They are immaterial, transcendental universals. They're, and by the way, here's what's really important. They're not human conventions. This is not something we agree upon. You can't get the United States to, you can't get United States Congress to pass a law that says, you know what, we're done with the law of non-contradiction. It's a bad law. From now on, things can contradict. It wouldn't change anything, right? These are, they are outside, they transcend nature. But the problem is if you're an atheist, there's no such thing as that which transcends nature. If you're an atheist, your whole worldview is that which is natural. The empirical world is the only thing available to you if you're an atheist. So what are the laws of logic in an atheistic universe? The best you can say is they're societal conventions. They're, they're what human beings made up. But if we made them up, we could change them. But they know we can't change them. So what else could they say? Well, the laws of logic are just descriptions of how the universe operates. There's a lot of problems with that. But here's just one of the main ones. Uh, the operations of the universe can change. It's called evolution. Right? You used to be a very different critter, according to evolution. If, 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 evolu if, if laws of logic are just descriptions of, of the current state of our universe and how it operates, we have no reason to assume that it's not in flux like the rest of our universe is. So you don't have stable, transcendental laws in atheism. Your whole world is just material, and material is always changing. So when an atheist says, Here's a logical reason why God doesn't exist. He's already disproved himself because there's no such thing as logic without God. To use logical laws is to assume atheism is false because you can't account for transcendental laws of logic. Uh, but that can't no, of course not. As a matter of fact, along those lines, I want to give you a quote because here's, here's where I think some people got confused last week. I think some people got confused with what's the connection between atheism and materialism, right? Like, um, if God doesn't exist, why can't I have a soul still? If God doesn't exist, why can't I have the supernatural world? And I, I, I don't have time today to, to break down all the connections, but all, all I can tell you is this, is, you, is I've never once in my entire life, and I've done a lot of debates on this, 
met an atheist who believes in the soul or met an atheist who believes in like, like angels and supernatural transcendental spirit beings. And the reason is because the reasons you would not believe in God would almost always apply to all supernatural immaterial beings. Atheism demands empirical evidence. Their, their worldview at the bottom is a worldview of empiricism. We don't believe in something which we don't have empirical evidence for. And so anything that is non-empirical does not exist. So they would say, if you, if you want me to believe in God, I need some empirical evidence. And that's why they need empirical evidence of the soul. But what, what empirical evidence of the soul do we have? The soul is immaterial. It's, it's beyond the empirical world. So they've, they've locked themselves out. And they know that once they affirm anything immaterial and intelligent, then they've lost all their arguments against the argument from God. Because any argument we could use to prove that there's an immaterial intelligence anywhere could be used to prove that there's an, a grand immaterial intelligence. And I, I, I want to show you this by quoting a man named Richard Lewontin, who is a PhD in uh, physics and molecular biology and is a professor at Harvard. And here's what he said, uh, writing in a book on another book on atheism. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to understanding the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. The eminent Kant scholar Louis Beck used to say that anyone who could believe in a god could believe in anything. To appeal to an omnipotent deity is to allow that at any moment the regularities of nature may be ruptured and that miracles may happen. I want to break down this in here, but just notice here's what he's saying. He is admitting that, that atheism is a commitment to materialism. That materialism is, look, absolute. There, this is the absolute reality that all, the, all life is, is the material empirical world. And what we're doing is we're taking this and saying, okay, give me logic then. Because logic is not material. It is not part of the material world. So if you want to say log, the material world is absolute, that's fine. But give us reason Give us logic and give us, and we'll see science and ethics too. Now, here, let me briefly explain. This is really important because he, he used some language that's hard to decipher here. But here's his point. He's saying that we have a prior commitment to materialism. And, and this is amazing. So, and then what he's saying in this middle paragraph is he's saying materialism is not a conclusion. It's a starting point. In other words... It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world. So he's, he's, he's explicitly affirming, I'm not a materialist because I studied science and science led me to the conclusion that materialism is true. He's saying, on the contrary, the entire enterprise of science is a system designed to only study the material world. So science does not lead you to believe all there is is materialism. It's the other way around. Materialism creates the apparatus of science. So his materialism is not a conclusion. It's a presupposition. That's what he means when he says we have an a priori commitment. A priori means without justification from the start. We start with materialism. And now that we have already affirmed that there is no God, what did human beings do? That means all there is is nature. And so we need a way to study nature. And then science was born. Science is built into the enterprise of science is the commitment that there is no God. And this is why Christians are so comfortable disagreeing with scientists on a lot of things. 
Scientists say the universe is billions and billions and billions of years old. Some Christians affirm that, but a lot of Christians don't. And they're comfortable doing that because when you study the presuppositions of the tests that are being run on the universe, you will often find that there are presuppositions that we think are wrong. It's a house of cards. This test is built on point A. And then once we, once we assume point A, we build this test on point A, and then we test the world and get conclusion B. But what if point A is wrong? Now your test is wrong. Now your conclusion is wrong. But so much of science is not conclusion-based. It's presupposition-based. Uh, I, I wish I would have shown the clip, but there's a, there's a, a Christian theologian who actually doesn't like the argument that I'm giving right now, but he still will use it in different ways. And he, there's this famous clip of him online of an atheist saying, I believe that science can account for everything. Science is God. Science can account for everything. And he asked the Christian, what can't science account for? And he just rattled off five things right off the top of his head. He said, number one, mathematical truths. Science does not prove one plus one equals two. On the contrary, math is assumed and then brought into science. You use math in science, right? So science doesn't justify math. It borrows math, right? Mathematical truths. He talked about uh, metaphysical truths. So the idea that um, there are, there's no such thing as a married bachelor. You can't discover that in the scientific world. That's metaphysics. That's logic. That's definitions. That's not science. Science uses logical truths. It uses mathematical truths. It uses metaphysical truths. It borrows them. It doesn't establish them. And he goes on to say, here's the best one. And this gets to our point. You want to know what something else science can't account for? Science itself. In other words, if you take the scientific method, which I forget what it is, the, you know, you, you, the hypothesis and then you test, and I, I can't remember what the scientific method is, but if you take the scientific method and ask, where did that come from? And guess where the answer is not? The scientific method did not come from the scientific method. Right? That would be circular reasoning. So guess what science didn't create? Science itself. So science is established on a whole host of assumptions. Assumptions about the universe. Now, we would, as Christians, would affirm many of those assumptions. I'm not saying that math is wrong. I'm not saying metaphysics is wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying science is wrong for doing this. But the point is, is we live in a world that's trying to make science this all-encompassing God that, that accounts for everything. But science from the very get-go was meant to be a very limited field. Science never wanted to be mathematics. It never wanted to be religion. It, never, it wanted to only study the empirical world. But once you make science everything, guess what you've done? You've made empiricism everything. And now what have you done? You've pushed out the ability to talk about anything existing that doesn't have a material component. And that's exactly what he's saying. It is not that the methods and institutions of science compel us to accept a material explanation of the world. On the contrary, it's the other way around. Science doesn't compel us to be materialists. Materialists compel us to do science in a particular way. That's what he's saying. And by the way, what's the driving force behind all of this? Because he's convinced if there's a God who controls nature, then that God can suspend nature and if nature can be suspended, then science has no purpose. So his whole point is saying, if you want to be a scientist, you can't believe in God because he might take science away from you. <laughs> so in order to be a scientist, you need to enter the science lab already believing that science is absolute, already believing that there is no God or else you won't be able to do science the right way. So again, here he is admitting, I'm sorry to be redundant, science, scientific conclusions do not lead to the proof that there is no God. You have to assume there is no God in order to do science, is what he's claiming. He's saying there, no matter how mystifying to the stupid person who doesn't believe me. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, he uses the word uninitiated. uninitiated. Yep. But that means unbeliever in what I'm saying. Yeah. The people who aren't the people who aren't one hundred twenty thousand dollars in debt uh, after going to a university that indoctrinated them to believe that's what it means to be uninitiated. Yeah. yeah the right people haven't <clears throat> haven't charged you one hundred twenty thousand dollars to tell you what to think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I don't have to work. Yeah. It's, it's, 
But again, the, the reason I brought this up is I want you to see the close connection between atheism and materialism. There's no such thing as an atheism that's still, like, there's no such thing as an atheist worldview that says there is no God, but there still exists the spirit world. There are spiritual beings. We have souls and spirits and minds, and there are demons, and there are angels, and there are transcendental metaphysical realities that are not material, but there's just no God. That's not how atheism works. Every atheist will tell you, once you take God out of the equation, you lose all ability to have anything beyond the material world. Most of them are very comfortable saying that. I've actually never ever seen an atheist who's tried to necessarily deny that. But the problem is, is if you take that to its logical conclusion, you lose a lot of important things like reason and science itself. And this is what we talked about last week. So science assumes induction. The most important assumption of science, again, this is not something that science can prove, it's something that science assumes. And it's the principle of induction. And induction is the idea that tomorrow will be like the past. Whatever we observe today is going to continue like this tomorrow. And by the way, if you, if you get really geeked out on this, you should look up, there's an essay you can read online by an atheistic philosopher, one of the most famous atheistic philosophers of all time named David Hume. And if you go and you look up David Hume, The Problem of Induction, The Problem of Induction by David Hume. He's an atheistic philosopher who just writes this long essay and he dies without an answer to this question. And he challenges all philosophers and all atheists, how do we account for induction? Because he understood in his conscience that without a God who governs and maintains the universe, you have no reason to believe tomorrow will be like the, the past. So the, the, the most important foundation stone to the building of science has a question mark on it. Does it even exist? Does it even exist? Again, I used the example last week. If you're driving down the street and you drive by a blue house, okay, there's a blue house. And you drive down a little bit further and you see another blue house. Oh, there's another blue house. What color is the house going to be, the third house? You don't know. It could be red. It could be blue. It could be white. You have no idea. Just because the last two houses you passed are blue doesn't mean tomorrow's going to be blue. And so now apply this to the scientific realm. I can drop this controller and measure it and tell you what gravity is and measure wind speed. How do I know it's going to drop the same way tomorrow? You're just assuming that. You're just assuming that if I drop this today and I drop it tomorrow, I'm going to measure the same thing. But how do you know that? How do you know gravity's not going to change when you wake up tomorrow morning? How do you know the sun's going to rise? How do you know photosynthesis isn't going to reverse process? How do you know your lungs are going to take CO2 rather than oxygen tomorrow? How do you, why do we just assume the universe is so orderly and consistent? And if you say because it always has been, always has been is not a justification for the future. Every house I pass so far has been blue. Doesn't mean the next house is blue. And that's what David Hume talked about. We have no reason other than just blind faith to, to work on induction. Atheism cannot account for induction, so atheism therefore cannot justify science. So a scientific argument to disprove God doesn't exist because you need God in order to give an account for why science makes sense. And so here's our third one. So we've looked at reason. Without God, there's no such thing as reason. There's just brain fizz. There's no such thing as the laws of logic. Without God, there's no such thing as science because you don't have induction. You don't have a foundation for science. And without God, there's also no reason for ethics. Every single person lives according to some ethical code. But without Christianity, we have to ask this question. Without God's existence, by what standard do we call anything good or evil? I've listened to so many atheists say, I don't believe in God the Bible because most parents won't tell you this, but do you realize that in 1 Samuel, God commanded the Israelites to slaughter the Amalekites, including the women and the children and the babies? I could never worship a God that slaughters babies. What's the question you should ask when someone says that? What's wrong with slaughtering babies? Now, I wish that was a hypothetical. Unfortunately, we live, we live in a country where this is a very real question because we actually do slaughter babies in this country. So unfortunately, this isn't a hypothetical. But even if you, didn't live in a, even if you lived in a country, just, it's not saying that you agree with slaughtering babies, but if they're going to make a claim, it's wrong to slaughter babies. They need to justify it. Why? Says who? Why can't I slaughter babies? Lions eat zebras. Snakes eat mice. I want to eat that baby. That's the natural world atheism has given me. Just the laws of the jungle, baby. 
The strong survive, the weak die. That's how atheism works. By what standard do you call anything good or evil? In other words, without a moral law giver, there is no moral law. And without a moral law, there's no such thing as good or evil. In other words, I, I like to look at it as the pyramid of ethics. That's what I call it, the pyramid of ethics. At the bottom, we have an objective moral law giver that everyone owes obedience to. And then he gives us a moral law. And then that moral law is how we establish good versus evil. But here's the problem. What does atheism do? It takes away this foundation. But guess what? Once you take away this foundation, you lose everything that was built on top of it. So you don't have a moral law if you don't have a moral law giver. And if you don't have a moral law, guess what you don't have? Good or evil. There's no such thing as good or evil in atheism. There's just, I don't like this, but why should I care? Why should anybody care what you like? I do like it. So now the way to do, you know what we do? We wrestle. <laughs> and whoever wins gets to pick what's true. So atheism is just two dogs in an alley fighting over a bone. That's, atheism, that's atheistic ethics. The guy with the bigger gun, might makes right. Here's a really, really cool video explaining this. I'm sure you get it, but it's, it's still fun to hear it and kind of see it with graphics and stuff. It helps us to get it. Well, maybe we're not going to watch it. There we go. Yeah, you knew I had to. <laughs> so the atheist has very limited options. The atheist has limited options available. So the atheist has his foundations. He believes that he's come from that farthest from Dr. Socrates. Uh, a fish, the philosopher from the goo to you, right? I absolutely love that he says that. So I took that from him. You're welcome. Um, so uh, that's, that's his, his view of origins. And so now they have to create a complex um, ethical system as a bag of biological stuff. And so they have very limited options. So what they're limited to is they can ultimately say, well, I feel like that's wrong. So here's their ethical system is preference. So your preference is you feel like you shouldn't murder another human being or you shouldn't steal from this person. So your preference is um, I don't like to do that. But here's the thing. You're not in charge of the guy who does like to kill people, who does like to rape, who does like to steal. You're not an authority in his life. Your preference has no power and authority in his life. So you can't create an ethical system off of your preferences. People have different preferences. That's why we have jails. Because there are lots of people who prefer certain activities and behaviors over others, and we know where we put those people. They prefer it. They want to do it. Or the atheist can say, well, our ethical system is based upon societal convention. So society determines what is right, what is wrong, what is immoral. So they're limited to society will determine. Okay, so if we grant the unbeliever the presupposition that society determines what is moral, then that means that Hitler wasn't wrong, Germany wasn't wrong because their society had determined by democratic vote that Hitler was in charge and that that's not a person, I know it looks like a person that's not a person, it's a Jew. And in that case, if you say society determines what is right, what is wrong, and that's the basis for ethics, then that means anybody who fought against slavery in the United States of America was immoral. Because society had determined that it was fine and okay to capture people as slaves and to enslave them and to use them as human property. And that means, watch, this is powerful. If society determines what is moral, then that means any society that has a person within it fighting for transformation within society on any level, the person fighting against that society is the immoral one. Why? Because society has determined what? That we can kill Jews. That we can enslave black people. And anybody who argues with it is the immoral one. You see, if you say society determines what is moral, then you are stuck with society changing morality over time, and whatever evil is happening, you cannot war against it because society has determined it. Which means no social transformation to any degree, really, at any time. And so the unbeliever is stuck with that. Societal convention, personal preference, and one more thing. When the unbeliever says, well, I have a basic preference, it's, it's what works to keep us alive. We've determined that if you murder others, then we're not going to flourish. 
We determined that if you steal from others, we're not going to flourish. We determined that if you, if you rape others, we're not going to flourish. What's the hidden assumption there that borrows capital from Christianity? Human value and dignity, and that society should flourish. Because we must ask the unbelievers. We must ask them. Are we stardust? They say, oh yes, yes, we're stardust. Like Carl Sagan said, we are stardust, right? Neil uh, Grassy Tyson, he says, we're stardust. Well, let me ask you a question. What makes you think stardust must flourish? What if I want a kerosene the whole anthill? Who are you to argue with me? You're acting like stardust should flourish and should, should produce and should do well. I think there's actually a lot of human suffering in the world, and if we just ended it all, we would end a lot of human suffering. There are actually a lot of people who think just like that. And you have no argument with them, no objective basis for morality. All you have is preference, societal convention. That's all you have. And when the unbeliever says, I think society should flourish, you should say, why should stardust flourish? And why are you picking this stardust over this stardust? Why are you saying that human beings should be the ones that flourish, who are the random results of evolutionary processes, and not dogs and snails and horses? Why aren't you fighting for them? Why are you fighting for humans? You're acting like humans are in the image of God. Thanks for watching, and to support this kind of content, um, and So here's what's interesting about the transcendental argument. So what we just looked at ethics, and what's interesting is uh, Christian apologists will actually take everything that was just said and make it its own argument, and they call it the moral argument. And the moral argument for God's existence is that without God, you can't have objective morality. And what, transcendental, what the transcendental argument does is it basically turns every argument into that same structure. So Christian apologists are out there saying, telling the atheists, hey, if there is no God, how do you account for the objective morals that you live by? And what the transcendental argument is saying, we agree, but we think we can do that with everything, not just morality. So the transcendental argument is saying, we're not just saying God is necessary for morality, because that, that's what we just learned, and that's how every Christian apologist argues when it comes to morals. In other words, morals don't prove God exists, God proves moral exists. If, if you take God out of the picture, you take morals out of the picture too. That's basically what we just heard. But what we're saying is that works for everything. If you take God out of the picture, yeah, you lose morality, but you lose a lot of other things too. You lose the laws of logic. You lose human reasoning. You lose human soul, which means you lose human free will. You lose the ability to do science because you don't have induction. So we're merely saying morality is not the only thing that God is so closely tied to that if you take God out of the picture, you take it out of the picture. We're saying God is so closely tied to all areas of intelligibility, reason, free will, morality, science. All of these things need God at their foundation that if you try to hypothetically presuppose an atheistic worldview, if you make a puzzle, an atheistic puzzle, morality is a piece that won't fit in that puzzle. Reason is a piece that won't fit in that puzzle. Science is a piece that won't fit in that puzzle, right? That's what we're saying. God is the foundation to ethics. He's the foundation to science. He's the foundation to reason. He's the foundation to free will. He's the foundation of logic. You take God away, you lose the ability to know anything at all. So atheism cannot justify our ability to use reason, science, or ethical standards. And that's why Greg Bonson famously said, the ultimate proof that God exists is that without him, you can't prove anything at all. How would you prove anything? How would I prove this tissue box exists right here? Because remember, I can't use reason. I can't use logic. I can't use science. So I can't even prove to you that this tissue box exists if God doesn't exist. The ultimate proof for God's existence that without him you can't prove anything at all. Because in order to prove things, you have to use stuff like logic, reason, science, free will, and all of these things are necessary to prove anything at all, and none of them make sense in a godless universe. But again, that's why I wanted to tie this all back into what we did two weeks ago, though. The ultimate reason why we believe God exists is not tied to any one argument. But as we've been looking at Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. God has made his existence evident to everyone. And I, I really want us to, to hammer on that. The arguments are good. Last week, I looked up some good quotes from some theologians as to why, we, why there is a place in our lives for proving God's existence. But at the end of the day, if you're going to be a biblical Christian, the Bible is very, very clear that God is not a mysterious 
potential being that we have to find. He has made himself known to everyone with clarity. And the only people who say he hasn't are people, the Bible says, are suppressing that truth. We know God exists because it's impossible not to. And that, in conclusion, is actually why I like the transcendental argument so much. Um, I'll go back to that quote. Because in my opinion, it's, it makes the most sense out of that claim of Romans 1. Romans 1 says everyone knows God exists, but they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And I think that the transcendental argument best makes sense of that. Because here's what's happening. Atheists use reason. We're not saying atheists don't have reason. Atheists are reasonable people. They reason about every decision in their life. And on a lot of decisions, they, atheists make really reasonable choices. They make true calculations. Some of the smartest mathematicians that have ever existed have been atheists. Atheists can be really, really smart thinkers. Atheists can even be very ethical people. You might have an atheist neighbor who's always donating money and he's always helping a volunteer at the soup kitchen. And Atheists can be ethical people. Atheists can do science really well. Atheists can reason really well. We're not saying they don't use these things. We're saying they can't make sense of these things. So the fact that their atheism says reason doesn't exist, science can't be made sense of, and ethics don't exist, yet they use these things, what does that tell me? They're not actually atheists. <laughs> they're not atheists because they're, they're using God's weaponry. They're using guns that say made by God, and they're shooting them at God. They're saying, look, God doesn't exist. I just killed him with weapons that say made by God on them. Right? They're not actually atheists. They're using what God can only account for in their everyday life. And I think that this is a demonstration of Romans 1. You can't account for science, but you use science. You can't account for morality, yet you try to be moral. You can't account for reason and logic, yet you use reason and logic. You're actually theists. You're undercover theists, right? And that's basically what Romans 1 says. Uh, I want to end with this great quote from Stephen Charnock. He, by the way, is his, he has a two massive books called The Existence and Attributes of God. And that's basically what I'm using as my textbook for this class going forward. Um, so he's, he's kind of like one of the go-to guys for the attributes of God. And uh, anyway, I love this quote from him. He says that the existence of God is so natural that every man is born with a restless instinct to be some kind of religion or other. The impression of a deity is as common as reason and of the same age with reason. It is a relic of knowledge after the fall of Adam, a notion sealed up in the soul of every man. Yet wherever you find human nature, you find this settled persuasion that the notion of a God seems to be twisted with the nature of man and is the first natural branch of common reason. Nature within man and nature without man agree upon the first meeting together to form this sentiment that there is a God. It is as natural as anything we call a common principle. I won't, for the sake of time, break down this whole quote, but I mean, obviously, he's, he's simply saying that as soon as you have the ability to think, you know God exists. There's no gap between them. It, my favorite part in this is when he says, um, the impression of deity is as common as reason, right? So as long as someone has a functioning brain, they know God exists. They're tied together. And then he goes on to say, and of the same age with reason. Notice what he's saying here. So here's what he's saying. This is not how human beings work. You don't mature and grow up and develop, your brain develops reason. And then you use reason to conclude that God exists. He's denying that. Because if that was the process, then reason would be older than your theism, right? Because you had reason first, and then you took some time and figured out that God existed. So you had reason first, and then later on, you determined that God existed. But he's saying the impression of deity is as old as reason. It is so programmed into you that it is as old as your reasoning. So you don't reason to God's existence. God comes with your reasoning. You just know he exists, and it's tied together with your reasoning. And it even goes on to say, nature within man and nature without man agree upon the first meeting. And his point is that you know God exists through a combination both of your nature, your programmed to know God exists, and your ability to think. And the second your ability to think and your nature come together, you're a theist. You know that there's one God. Like, he is saying that theism is as natural to your soul as breathing is to your lungs. You are, we are just theistic creatures. We are born and created and made theistic creatures. So I don't, even though there are lots of great arguments to prove that God exists, please don't ever think the fact that we need all of this philosophy 
is an indication that God is far off and you have to be really, really smart to figure out that he's there, right? You don't have to be smart or dumb. Everyone knows that he's there. So that's all we've done. We looked at four arguments, teleology, fine-tuning, cosmological, and transcendental. And I just, for selfishly, I focused a lot of time on my favorite one. Um, but I'm not saying it's like objectively better than the others. It just depends on the person and time and place. But that's the one that I like. So we'll, we're done with uh, God's existence. Next week, we'll look at God as spirit. But do you have any thoughts or questions or concerns or just anything at all before we close up? Or an additional argument that you've heard that you like a lot, something like that? Well, it's just interesting, um, I mean, because, like, when we were uh, reading the quote by the atheist Cameron, um, but, I mean, you, at, because knowledge is revealed by God, mm -hmm. or the truth is revealed to us by God, um, and Scripture affirms that, of course, but, uh, so obviously he's concealed himself from these these men, regardless of how smart they are. Right. And when, so we, we have the spirit of truth within us, and so when we, when we read those quotes, we can see that their thinking is obviously backwards. It's, it's uh, presupposing things that are wrong. Right. And it's very interesting to see how the depravity of man uh, how far it's willing to go, how far a man is willing to follow that sin just to avoid God. Exactly. Yep, that's exactly right. And to use his exact phrase, we just, we can't allow a divine foot in the door. We can't even crack the door open for it. We have to, you're right. And it shows just how resolved and committed he is. And, and he, he only gave one reason why. He, he, his argument was, he thinks that if God exists, you can't do science because then, because then miracles might happen. And, Science, the very definition of a miracle is the contradiction of science, science laws. But what his thinking does, though, is it shows that they are, they are spiritually aware that there are, if God exists, there are consequences. And, and the consequences go way beyond just miracles. The consequences of sin and death and accountability. So we see that, exactly what you're saying, there's this resolve, like, no, there can't be a God because otherwise... I have to give an account and then I have to live like this. So you see that God just messes their plans up too much. Yeah. Where they get to that point where they just have to say, uh, I know it doesn't make sense, but I'm not going to be accountable to God, therefore it doesn't exist. Right, yeah. I mean, he can't exist because they make whatever state they want, but it's basically if God exists, I'm accountable. Yep. It's, and I'm not going to be that way. Therefore, he can't exist. The math, I, I have a degree in physics, an old one, mm -hmm. and therefore math, a minor in math. Just the probabilities that any of this stuff happens. Oh, yeah. It's so astronomically unbelievable. It, it's just, it's, it's anything else you would, you, you wouldn't even consider it. I mean, it. it the steps, even the blood clots, that cell, that the two cells got to get a cell ever came into being in the first place, and then two cells, the whole, it's it's just yep. mathematically not going to be there. After after Darwin published his first book of findings, there were two groups that staunchly opposed his findings. And the first one was Christians. Christians opposed it for two reasons. Number one, they saw that it was an attack on Christianity. And number two, what most people don't tell you is that it was extremely, extremely racist. Uh, you should just Google, just Google the full title of Darwin's first book. People never mention the full title. They only mention part of the title because the full title goes on to expose that part of what he does in the book is explain about how some races are not evolved along enough. And that's what, this is where the whole thing about black people and monkeys, you know, it's racist to call a black person a monkey. That's where it came from. They were, the argument was essentially that black people look like monkeys. They've got the bigger lips and the bigger nostrils and the bigger hands, and they're stronger than us and they're more athletic. They look like monkeys, so they must be, what, further down the chain in the evolutionary period. So the early evolutionists were, were disgusting racists, unbelievable racists. So the Christians pushed back because it was racist. 
and because it was an attack on the Bible. But there was another group of people that pushed back even harder than the Christians did, and it was the mathematicians. This is an amazing fact of history. It took years before the mathematical science became so politically corrupt that just out of pressure, they just gave into the evolutionary worldview. But the mathematicians, not the Christian ones, all of them, the atheistic mathematicians, laughed. I mean, they considered Darwin's theory a laughingstock because we forget the world, we, we isolate disciplines for the purpose of simplicity, like you go to school and you study English, and then you go to biology, and then you go to physics, but the universe doesn't work like that. Everything interacts in the same sphere. So biology has mathematical implications, and vice versa. You can't separate them in reality. You can only separate them in your mind. And once you create these biological hypotheses, this has mathematical repercussions. And the mathematicians tested evolution mathematically, and it's a joke. No, and even today, I guarantee if you had most math professors behind closed doors, they would say something along the lines of like, well, there's good biological evidence for it, so we just keep it in biology. You just keep, just keep evolution in biology. That's why we call it bio, biological evolution. Just keep it in biology. Because they don't want it crossing into their discipline. Because then they're going to have to be really bad mathematicians when they look at all these numbers and statistics and say, yeah, that's reasonable. It reminds me of, <clears throat> it reminds me of the lottery that we have. And we have people, good mathematicians, scientists, who know how a lottery works. They know that that money doesn't come from me. The money people win is money people put into it minus the money to run it and the money the government took out of it. Right. So buying a $2 ticket every weekend is not ever, I mean, somebody is going to win $5,000, but you ain't ever going to get there by putting in your ticket every week. Right. It's, It's not... It makes no sense. Yet people with good sense do it. Right. Exactly. Because I might, you know, who knows? It might be me. Exactly. And, and you can't say, well, no, it won't. I mean, we don't know. It, it, it might, but you're going to waste a lot of money. For no, exactly. And, 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 and I know you probably know this, but they'll say most of the, most of the claims of evolution, the odds of them happening even in the time frame that we've been given, which grows every year because they need more time for evolution every year, the, uh, it's, it's, it would be some more equivalent to like winning the lottery, the same person winning the lottery every single session for like 40 times in a row. Like th- those, those are the kinds of numbers we're talking about. We're not even talking about, I don't know that's not what you're saying, but we're not even talking about winning the lottery. We're talking about winning like 40, 50 times in a row. And then here's the additional argument after that though. Someone, I, I heard an apologist say this. Well, here's what you're saying. Let's imagine someone did, just for the sake of argument, let's, let's imagine someone did win the lottery 40 times back to back to back to back. What would most people probably start assuming? Something's rigged here. But notice this. What happens when the sun rises every morning at the exact same time, every single day, for allegedly billions and billions of years? None of these atheists suddenly say, something's rigged here. Right? Someone can't win the lottery every single year without us thinking, there must be some intelligence behind this making it work. Yet the seasons change every year and the sun rises every single day. And we think, accident this could, this could stop at any moment. You know, we, we don't know how, why it does this. It was accident, right? No, when the sun rises every day, you should think that something's rigged here. Someone's, someone's behind the scenes pulling levers. It's like, yep, that's right. <laughs> yeah, there, there is. There is, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I, and you said something on that I want to comment, yeah, but I forgot. Actually, but. You know, we know how much energy the sun is burning. It's slowly getting smaller. Mm-hmm. But the mathematics of how we got here and evolved go way back past where the sun would have, would have actually been out to our orbit. <laughs> right, yeah. It would have been that big to account for the time of its decay and the time of evolution. The time it would require for all of these ridiculous incidents to happen. Because the zeros are just even... They're, they're literally unfathomable. It's, it's hard for us to... Yeah. Which and, and remember, that's why last week we saw, a, there are lots of atheists who recognize this. And remember last week, that's why we saw the new competing yeah. 
theory is the multiverse, the multiverse theory is that there's some, it sounds an awful lot like God, but there's something creating universes out there. And if you create enough of them, it's like an, literally an infinite amount, then eventually, if you have an infinite of something, then the most crazy statistical odds are always hit once. That's, so if you have an infinite universes, then one of them is going to look just like ours, right? So, that, and so people are realizing the consequences of this. But again, rather than just, you know, Occam's razor, let's just go to the more simple answer. I guess God made us for a purpose. Let's go to the more complicated answer that somehow universes are just popping out of, <laughs> out of nowhere. I mean, you know. We're still on top. <laughs> yeah, and we just, yeah, we got lucky. We got really, really lucky. There's not a creature better than us coming to eat us. Yeah, it's yeah, so, um, like I said, that's always fun discussion, uh, talk about God's existence, but um, we have some really, really fun stuff coming up, equally, if not even more compelling. So, yeah, next week we're going to talk about God as a spirit, and again, that was, my research this week was really fun. It, I, I thought, this is going to be one we can just fly through. That's why originally I was just going to put it at the tail end of this. We're just going to do God's existence, and then we'll do God as a spirit, get it done with, but I realized, no, this, this needs a whole class, so we'll have some fun stuff to talk about. You know, I think the other thing that seems to me we ought to recognize is this is a form of worship. Yeah, that's good. Studying, contemplating, thinking about how God is created and how it works and these arguments. It is not simply an intellectual game. That's right, yeah. But it is worship because we are contemplating the wonders of God. That's right. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I, I do agree. The Bible says, come let us reason together. God tells us that. I, I think God loves when we're kind of in this spiritual dialogue with him, reasoning with him about himself, <laughs> you, you know. Yeah, some, sometimes I think it's, it's, more, it's more than singing songs. I mean, yeah, oh yeah. We are, if you get involved with trying to reason about God, I mean, you get involved. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, and I'll put it this way. So uh, the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. It's about finding wisdom and passing on wisdom. And uh, it's really, uh, every person, myself included, would benefit from reading the Proverbs a lot more often. Like people are always desperate for life application. How does this affect me? How does this, if you're the person who's just desperate for just immediate life application, you should be reading from the Proverbs every day. Because that's all it is. Live like this. Don't live like this. This will make you richer. This will make you poorer. This will make you happy, right? It's just, it's just application. But what's interesting is, like most Old Testament books, you know, Christ says that he's in all of the scriptures. So Proverbs is more than just a manual for wisdom and right living. So theologians have really racked their brains, like, how do we see Christ in the scriptures, or in the book of Proverbs? And one of the more, the most common, and I would subscribe to this, even though I wouldn't, like, be, be able to preach a sermon on it right now, is that wisdom is actually personified as Christ himself. And that even in the New Testament, Christ is referred to as logos in Greek. And logos was a word that meant word, but was actually encapsulated this concept of wisdom. The philosophers talked about, the Greek philosophers talked about finding the logos, which was the ultimate wisdom, the ultimate word. And so Christ is the wisdom. And so here's, here's what that means. The spiritual application of Proverbs, the practical application is just do what it says, but the spiritual application is our need to search out and find Christ, to find Christ and to be satisfied in Christ too. So the whole book of Proverbs is saying, go find Christ, go learn Christ, go understand Christ. And so this is kind of like that, that spiritual worship of go find God, go find Christ, go learn about him. You need to learn about wisdom, aka you need to learn about Christ, you need to learn about God. So yeah, the whole book of Proverbs is commending us to setting our minds to finding God, finding out who God is. And so, yeah, don't think you're just necessarily just coming here for class. You're coming here to obey the book of Proverbs and its spiritual application. Amen. Yes, that's right. That's right. That is. And, and even that word knowledge is, is so important because certainly it encompasses more than just like head thoughts. You know, if you know someone, you don't just know facts about them. But, what that, but it's not less than that though, right? Like you can't, you can't love what you don't have head thoughts of, you know? So he's, he's absolutely telling us in that verse, he's not just saying to love God. He's saying like, well, you need to understand who he is. 
or else you don't know what you're loving, <laughs> right? So that, yeah, that's a fantastic verse. We, need, we want to know who he is, what he's about, what he is, and then from there, that's the only way we can finish off our, know it, our knowledge with, with love and truth. And, yeah. About Proverbs, I like the way it has, you know, 30, 31. I mm-hmm. read one every day, every month. Yep. Yep. Really, the month has just blown by, and now you're in it again. As many times as I've read them, it's it's amazing. Yes, exactly. I have I have some friends who are really into that. All the months that have 31 days, you read a proverb every day, and they, I've I've heard, I've heard people say it's changed their life. You know, and I I actually one I don't know if I'll remember this however many years from now. But I heard one guy say it was, it's been great for, for morning devotionals with his kids. Is one of the best things for his kids is you just teach him one proverb a day. Or, I mean, not like necessarily a whole chapter because some of them have, a, but just literally one principle, one proverb, proverbial principle. You just give him one for the day to work on. Like, here's your morning proverb. Apply this at school today. Like, go do this at school today. Right, yeah. Because one proverb, you know, proverbs one has so much. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. So really, you could read it all year. Yeah, that's right. And the middle ones are the ones that have the most, the, the first few chapters are basically just the instructions for why wisdom matters. I like to describe the, I, I summarize like the Proverbs 1 and 2 is basically saying, your children are stupid and parents need to teach their stupid children not to be stupid. That's basically what it says though. Your children are dumb. Don't think they're just going to figure life out. They're not. They're dumb. You need to teach them. <laughs> so, son, come learn from your parents because you're not smart. <laughs> that's, that's basically what the book of Proverbs is. But Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, I hope you enjoyed the last two weeks on God's existence. I know, especially last week, I know it's a lot. But trust me, if you don't like a lot, then it's not the class for you because we're going to get into some really heavy stuff in this class. But 